0: and Roll and Coffee Show episode number 84. I am Joe Sebelia. Tonight my guest is Ryan Roxy. Ryan is a very accomplished solo artist but is probably best known as Alice Cooper's guitar player. He has also played with Slash in Slash's Snake Pit and he got his career started in the band called Candy alongside Gilby Clark of Guns N' Roses. Candy went on to reform as the Electric Angels in the early 90s. Ryan also hosts his own podcast called In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy, which is a very uh, entertaining conversation podcast that I definitely recommend you check out after you listen to this episode. Not before, but after. I got to sit down with Ryan and chat about all of this, plus the Alex Cooper tour, on this episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show. If you're listening to the audio version of this conversation, please make sure to check out our video version of this on our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can be notified as new videos post. Thanks for listening.
1: Your whole studio vibe looks perfect, man. You have the backlighting. I love it, man. Well, you know, I'm trying. I'm new to this YouTube thing. So yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to get used to
0: it. You had your studio. What You got backdrop there. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, have, I. This is Wayne's world. I can yeah. always change it if I want, but this is yeah. actually the Wayne's world uh, thing. So I, I, awesome. I I've uh, gotten a green screen, and so yeah. I can change for different things. And when I do, um, ads for our sponsors, for instance, I can have a completely black background and stuff. So yeah, it's quite nice. You know, yeah, it looks good. Looks good. Thanks, man. I mean, I, I, it's been a. It's sort of a, a, a long journey in a short amount of time to go through all these types of changes because I used to have, I used to do it in the other, uh, one of my kids rooms where it had a really nice sort of New York backdrop. And that's where I did a, where I started the podcast and did a bunch of stuff. But, you know, I found out that, uh, well, we had to move to a smaller place. So how can I make this smaller place look mm-hmm. larger? And, uh, mm-hmm. that was the green mm-hmm. screen. But, uh, awesome. so you, so what kind of base is that? Is that a, that's, uh, a,
0: that's a specter. This is one of my yeah. older ones. This is Spectre. just a cheap, uh, cheaper one. Back in the day, well, when yeah. I used to play. I had a little artist endorsement, you know, and they gave you discounts on them, but I still could only afford that one.
1: <laughs> don't say back in the day when I used to, because that yeah. means that you don't do it anymore. No, and I still the do fact it, but that I, it's out there, it's, you're doing it.
0: Yeah, I still I don't have the endorsements. Though. I got another one hanging up right here. too. It's a, Another Spectre. I don't know if you can see it, but it's... Uh, nice,
1: yeah, yeah. See, Spectre's... Like yeah. You, normally they make like I remember specters as like really nice wood type mm-hmm. of instruments, and they kind of like resembled really nice furniture, like yeah. like if you like a really beautiful coffee table or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's kind of cool them. that I can I can bring you know some of my real guitars here, and then you blend them with like you know that Kramer that's in the back, so it kind of does give it the. Uh, illusion that it is a, a real thing, but every once in a while, somebody when I'll do one of these mm-hmm. uh, podcasts, they'll go, "That set looks familiar." Is that
0: Wayne's World? <laughs> and they go, "Yeah." I didn't notice the Wayne's World thing, but I the shark gave it away that
1: it was yeah. The up. shark is is, is a, <laughs> you know it's it's weird it's 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 like this could be in in reality so many of our you know basement types of yeah. studios and stuff. So yeah. it, could, it could be I growing up. Where I grew up, it this is definitely uh, part of the land, the landscape of what I grew up in, you know. It's so many of these types of basements that, yeah. you know, it was like, I guess you'd call it a man cave, or it was just for us kids to, like, watch TV and sort of get away from the parents, I think. Basements were so
0: great, <laughs> weren't they?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't even so much just basements. It was just, like separate rooms where we were I guess just carted off to and then that then I'd play with my friends and, and a lot mm-hmm. of times uh, I'd have the garages would be turned into something like this for our rehearsal rooms and stuff and yeah. know, there's always some some sort of nice uh, parents that would sort of donate their garage for a couple months until they got in trouble and <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the neighbors up, couldn't handle where'd it. did
0: you grow up in uh in the Bay Area, right?
1: Oakland. Yeah, I grew up in uh, the East Bay, uh, right outside of Oakland, um, a little cow town called Pleasanton. I mean, I at the time, is. yeah, at the time, it was a really, really kind of uh, suburban, ultimate suburban type of landscape. Thank you very much, Bianca. That's my wife, Bianca, who's also dressed in pajamas as well, and and <laughs> she like said. I said, please give me a cup of coffee so we can have this morning uh, well, coffee. Well, cheers with the
0: coffee to you.
1: There yeah. here you go. It's very rarely that I do uh, any of these uh, types of podcasts with the states um, when I'm drinking coffee and the person that I'm talking to is drinking coffee because usually— because of the time difference, I'm drinking yeah. wine. By the time yeah. they're drink, they're still drinking coffee. Yeah. But yeah, growing up in in uh, Northern California, it was it was definitely cool. It was definitely a a, a great uh, way to get. Oh, wait a second. Now I'm getting. Mm-hmm. No, I did not. That's fine. <laughs> um, growing up in this the Northern California, it was like a great music uh, education for me because. Um, like I was saying, where we were living was very suburban. Um, a lot of the Oakland Raiders at that time, the mm. '70s Oakland Raiders, they all lived in the same city as I did in the same little town. It was a cow town. Now you can't even afford to live there. It's it's like I couldn't afford to live there. It's every house are million dollar houses and stuff. So, yeah. Um, but the but the most important thing was the radio, and mm. I, I think. To nobody really uh, views radio as such an educational tool anymore. Now they now radio is just something that's almost like a novelty in their car. Or, you know, right. every once in a while they go, "Oh yeah, I heard something's on the radio or something." You know, like some sort of talk program. But back then, AM radio in particular was my source for pretty much every new band that I, I would come across because you know our our station that was based out of the Bay Area KFRC would play a great mixture of rock and disco and funk because in Northern California I was influenced by lots of different styles of rock music whether it be, what is now known as classic rock, you know, bands and soft rock like Fleetwood Mac and stuff. Sure. But at the same time, you know, back to back with Aerosmith, you know, and then the next song would be perhaps a Earth Wind and Fire song, and then the next song would be Santana. Right. So you you got all these different styles in a really uh, short amount of time. So it wasn't as um, everything wasn't put into such small boxes now. Now when you go on to a streaming service and you want to hear uh, your favorite song and you put on radio, you'll get 10 other songs that mm-hmm. are kind of just like it, you know, yeah. and yeah. you won't get that broad spectrum as I did growing up as a kid. So, you know, technology is amazing for musicians, but it also, I think... Uh, maybe sometimes by no fault of its own it's a little bit limiting yeah
0: yeah now what was it like growing up in that area cuz you know i used to um i used to be a district manager for a large retail company and i had the bay area at one time san francisco oakland area and nice. two of my two of my stores you had to go into like this little i don't even know what to call it like little holding chamber and get buzzed into the store there's okay. one in San Francisco and one in Oakland that the crime was so bad that they had to do that. What was it like yeah. growing up out there at that time?
1: See, for me, we were weekend warriors in the sense that we would go into the city on the weekends. I remember as a child, you know, I probably spent more time in San Francisco, the city, um, than I did in Pleasanton on the weekends because I, I would... My parents were really into going to um, San Francisco, uh, the, the park, um, what was it called? The Observatory, right by Fisherman's Wharf, Ghirardelli Square, all these types of more tourist places. Mm-hmm. So the crime element in that sense, as long as you parked your car and didn't leave anything right, in the car— right. It was cool. I do remember a few times going there with aunts and uncles who were visiting and, you know, they might have left their, their purse, you know, maybe under the seat in the back of the car. But of course, when we came back, there was a window broken Uh. and that was, that's what happened. So (sighs) luckily I never fear, I never experienced extreme violence or extreme, uh, sort of, uh, Poverty, in the sense of like I wasn't directly exposed to it as a a little kid. I knew it existed because we would drive through the um, Tenderloin area in order to get to the places we were getting to in Mm -hmm. San Francisco, and you would definitely see there was a disparity of wealth in uh, in San Francisco, especially Mm -hmm. Oakland. You kind of just drove through because at that time, even going to an Oakland Raider game um, as a kid there wasn't really much around there. And um, I think the only place for uh, the sort of sightseers and what what I was doing as a little kid to get educated was Jack London Square. So I didn't, again, I wasn't put around the same sort of um, environment. Like I mm-hmm. said, very suburban, mm-hmm. uh, track housing, lived in a cul-de-sac, so all those things about growing up rough and tumble in the Bay Area of the 1970s didn't really apply for me, you You know, although I knew it was there. You lived by uh, John Madden, right? I lived in the same uh, housing track as as John Madden and uh, actually played on the same Little League baseball team as his son, Joey Madden. So I remember Joey Madden and Mike Madden, The two they were the two brothers. And Mike Madden was a little bit older than me. And he was actually my flag football coach in sixth grade. And this is odd because I just thought about this the other day, gave me one of my... I guess biggest affirmations as a kid growing up, like how you need these, these sort of supportive things that happen in your life that sort of drive you to the next sort of level of whatever you're trying to do as a kid. And I guess as a kid, I was just trying to emulate the, the amazing football players that I would watch on Mm -hmm. Sunday uh, with the Oakland Raiders. And I was on this flag football team and I remember taking, Catching this one pass, it went off a defender and it hit off his shoulder, but it some ricocheted into my hands. And Mike Madden just like gave me the biggest encouragement, said, you are the best receiver. That's the (laughs) best reception I've ever seen. And I'll never forget that. So, you know, even though I didn't get direct um, affirmation from John Madden, I got it from Mike Madden, (laughs) It came from a Madden. Which was close enough. It came from a Madden. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So, and at that point, you wanted to be an NFL star, right?
1: I wanted to be <laughs> a, a combination of Cliff Branch and Freddie Balitnikov. Those were the mm. two wide receivers that were on the Raiders at that time. Um, because I was left handed, and I still am left handed, uh, I was always compared to uh, Kenny Stabler, mm. Snake, you know, number 12. And uh, so I would. Uh, definitely try to think of myself as a quarterback. Granted, all this stuff went out the window as soon as flag football became actual tackle (laughs) football. Because, you know, with tackle football, in those days, um, we'd play some sort of, games around the cul-de-sac, if if you will, because there wasn't a lot of traffic coming in and we played on the, on the asphalt and we played on the, on and it wouldn't be tackle, to hand touch at that point. And, um, but you'd always end up getting some sort of scuff, bruise on your, on on your, uh, elbows and stuff. So, so when we were lucky enough to move it onto the grass, then we just would play full on contact tackle football with no pads or anything like Mm. that. Which yeah. is kind of stupid if you think about it now, yeah, but, but it was—it's fun, fun as hell, yeah, fun as yeah, hell. Yeah.
0: So, okay, so when did you start getting into music? How did you? How
1: did that find you, or how did you find music? Um, it was always around as well, uh, just like the just like the the football and the sports. My dad was more a, a sports guy. Um, my mom was more of the musician. She had played drums uh, in the marching band growing up. So um, there was a acoustic guitar I can still remember in the living room, just there, almost like as a prop, you know, because it was the 70s. Almost every family had some sort of instrument there just lying there. And that, I think that's the best advice you can give any parent today is not, you don't have to force your kid to play music, but if you have something that's lying right there, I think that's a, hold on just one second. Sure. There you go. I'm getting. Um, <laughs> can you close the door, baby? Thank you so much. Um, I'm getting amazingly taken care of by That's my wife perfect. right now. She's Yeah, you know, she gave me my my morning shot of. I don't know if you do uh, ginger shots as well. So
0: no, I never have.
1: Okay, well, yeah. ginger shots are good for you. They they give you a little boost and it helps with uh, immunity and all that kind of stuff. What is so. it? Ginger. Yeah, you know, ginger. Yeah, ginger and some, well, maybe she's put some other sort of <laughs> elixir in here. I'm not sure, but I will have it right now. Cheers to you. Enjoy. Mm. But yeah. Stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. Ooh, it gives a little <laughs> kick too. There's a little pepper in there too. Yeah. I like it. Um, the thing is, growing up, I, I think you have the, um, to have an instrument lying there on your couch, uh, you know, or just around is the best sort of in way to get someone into it. Because, yeah. you know, if you force someone to play music and force someone to, to do lessons, it's, it's kind of a 50-50 shot. You know, you don't know if they're going to really be into it for themselves or they're just doing it to, you know... Check a box so that you, they get your approval. So, if you're a parent and you're thinking, Well, I'd really like my kid to get into music because I think it is really important to do, just make it available. Yeah. And that's I the agree. way it was. That's the way it was for me. Like the way your bass is right behind you, the way this guitar is right behind me, have it lying around. I'd strum it. I didn't really know. I mean, I was five years old when I would just sit there and learn how to uh, strum it and pick it and sort of just see yeah. what, you know, what what's going on here with this. It looks cool. And then, of course, some of these early albums that I would listen to was the best source in the world. It was mm-hmm. like record albums. And uh, my parents, uh, my mom, definitely her favorite soundtrack was Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm-hmm. So I remember that, you know, like a rock and roll soundtrack going on, like... And it wasn't just during the Christmas holidays. We would play Jesus Christ Superstar all throughout oh, the year yeah. because it was a great, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's first uh, musical and right, uh, right, really, right. really uh, great music and great songs. And there was also, I remember the soundtrack to Hair was a big album mm. in, our, in our household. So the combination of having guitar-driven music and r- sort of rock and roll and actually having a guitar in the house kind of I gravitated towards it, so it wasn't too long before i I asked to uh, to get lessons and to actually have my own electric guitar of my own so okay. so, quite... so you did take formal lessons yeah I mean I took lessons. Again, I'm coming back with all these mentors that sort of meant something to me and sort of elevated me to the next level of where I guess I wanted to be was, you know, Mike Madden helped me with my sporting career, giving me that affirmation. My One of my first guitar teachers, Steve Phillips, um, and I remember his name to this day, that's how important he was to my musical education. He was the one that taught me all about Peter Frampton, Frampton comes alive, um, taught me all those songs off that double album, which is one of the most amazing double records, full gateway. uh, What do you call it? Gatefold records? Yeah. That opens up. And um, I would stare at that album, listen to it, want to become it. Then I actually learned those songs. So, um, yeah, I give Steve uh, Phillips a lot of credit for uh, getting me on my journey. I, I did have other. Teachers growing up, uh, private teachers. My mom was really supportive of taking me to the lessons. Um, Eventually. I was
0: going to ask that if your parents were supportive.
1: Yeah, yeah. My, my, my parents uh, split up for when I was pretty young. Um, so my dad split to Florida. And so it was uh, my mom and I. And she was very cool about bringing me to uh, different lessons. Certain teachers were obviously better than others. I remember Steve Phillips. The, the, the negative side of that is there was this other German teacher that I remember that didn't give me affirmations, but maybe was just as important because... He mentioned to my mom, as we were walking out of the music store one day, he said, you should really teach your son, You get, get your son to be into something else besides guitar, because he'll never learn how to play guitar the way he's doing it right now. He's just, he's not focused. He yeah. he will never really amount to anything with the guitar. So I thought that was quite, you know. He, clearly he was wrong. Well, and clearly he was saying <laughs> it loud enough that I could hear it. So maybe it was one of those types of negative... Uh, comments that that kind of make you inspired to yeah. to all show him but Trying I push you. I've, I've never thought that that's the best way to teach someone how to uh, achieve their goals I, you know and years later as I put my own guitar system together and I've devised a way to to teach guitar that I think has kind of taken all my years of experience and and put it into this course we never, we never do that. We never beat yourself mm. up. I mean, just the fact that you're sitting there with a guitar or having the desire to learn is a positive and it's a, it's a good thing. You should never feel guilt about, oh, I didn't practice today or I didn't, you know, I'll never get this. No, it's you will get this. You just do need to consistently focus and put the time in. And that's yeah. basically what I did, you know, for for a bunch of years. And eventually I became a guitar teacher at a pretty young age. I was like 15 years old teaching guitar lessons. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that was at at one of the other main music stores in town. It wasn't uh, Pleasanton, but it was Dublin. Dublin was kind of like the Oakland of Pleasanton, if you will. I mean, so Pleasanton would be the San Francisco and, and Dublin was just a little bit more, um, Uh, Just a little more rough and tumble, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah, okay. And then, so, how old were you when you first got into your first band?
1: Oof. Well, the first, I I, I don't know if I'd call it a band, but it was definitely our first award-winning... (laughs) Award-winning? Award-winning. Well, if you if you count the Alameda County Fair first prize in the talent show as award-winning, yes. which I do, I still have yeah. the trophy to prove it somewhere. Um, I must have been about oh my goodness, maybe nine at that oh, point.
0: Wow, wow. maybe okay.
1: maybe maybe even a little bit younger. And um, I think I did it twice. One time I did not. Uh, I don't remember. Uh, that time as well, because I remember it more with the band, but I did it solo. <laughs> I think I played acoustic guitar. I played uh, Donny Osmond, the Osmond brothers, Puppy Love on acoustic guitar. <laughs> How How you, about you, that?
0: you were singing as well?
1: Um, I think at that point, I was just like, maybe I might, might have been eight or nine years old, or maybe even younger. Just playing it with my head down, playing acoustic guitar, very Kurt Cobain-ish, you know, (laughs) as a shoegazer. It was like, I think it was way early grunge. And yeah, Yeah. my hair was probably all on my face. Um, But then I think a year later, we went back at it and um, it was a band called the Stratocasters. And it was three guitar players... I was the only one that had a Stratocaster and that's how we came up with our name. Cause we were at the audition and we hadn't come up with a band name and everyone goes, well, we need a, we need a band name to put in the, to fill in the uh, form. And everybody looked at their guitar necks. And one person, when our guy, Mike had a, a Gibson SG and it had Gibson on the headstock. And then uh, our other guitar player, Matt Clark had a Epiphone and I and Epiphone seemed, okay, well, that's the Epiphone's. And then we looked at it and we said, oh, the Stratocasters. Okay, we're the Stratocasters. Right. And then it was just three guitar players, no drummer, no bass. And uh, we mm-hmm. did a scorching guitar-driven uh, <laughs> version, obviously, of... Uh, what did we do? Um, Jumpin' Jack, Flash, and Your Mama Don't Dance, Your Daddy Don't Rock and Roll. So combining wow. Rolling Stones and... Loggins in Messina. And that's when we took home the, the, the gold. Man, too bad. You don't have that on video. You or know you? what? I think we have it on. No, no. I don't think videotape was even around at that point. We're well, talking real still tape, right? eight millimeter. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I even don't think that uh, I think at that point camcorders hadn't come out yet. So that we're still yeah. talking 16 millimeter and there is 16 millimeter footage of one of the shows, I mean, I remember there being like a, is it eight millimeter, 16 millimeter? It was like one of those little, it was actually shot on film. Mm-hmm. And I took that camera to one of my very first concerts. So I, somewhere in the archives, I know it's somewhere. I have footage of um, a, a big concert in Oakland Coliseum. They would call Day on the Green. Yes. And I, and I have a Day on the Green footage I don't know how I got a actual, you know, eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter camera into 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 (laughs) the venue, but I have footage of Cheap Trick, I have footage of Black Sabbath, and footage of Journey. And again, like if you think of those, those bands back in those days, what a great spectrum of music, what all, all rock and roll, all great, you know, all great bands in their own right, but a cool spectrum. And yeah, I was just filming it back in those days. So that's awesome. Yeah. I I mean, there's probably some Polaroid pictures of that talent show that we won first prize in. But like I said, I still, the reason why I know it, and I don't know if it's the Mandela effect at this point of it, you know if it really happened, if if we won first, but I've got the trophy that says we played first, that we got first prize in it. So I'm sticking with that story. There you go. There you go.
0: (laughs) So then when you, uh, you made the jump early to move down to LA, correct? Super early. Yeah. 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 Did you know people down there or did you just say that's where I need to be right now?
1: Well, Luckily enough, my mom came from a big family. Even though I was an only child, my mom came from a big family. So she had, you know, eight brothers and sisters that mostly lived down in the Los Angeles area. So as soon as I um, was able to graduate from high school, which I did graduate early, not like I took a GED. I just was able to um, get all my uh, stuff together, uh, all my required subjects together. I even applied for... Uh, UCLA and was accepted to UCLA um, University. But at the last minute, it was kind of like an audible um, because there was this new school that had come out um, just a few years prior called GIT, Guitar Institute of Technology. Now everybody knows it, uh, you know, and many people go there. But back in those days, it wasn't that huge of a thing. So I was at a crossroads Um, I definitely wanted to leave Northern California. I had heard about all these, you know, really cool bands that I identified with that I, you know, had as posters on my wall who were just up and coming, who were all coming from Los Angeles. And this is like the days of, you know... I guess the biggest band coming out of that scene was Motley Crue. They had just put a record out. It was 1983, 1982, 1983. And they had just independently released a record on leather records called Too Fast for Love. And that album was... So influential for me, just as far as attitude. I, I think Such Mick Mars album. is good. Mick Mars guitar playing, the songwriting. Um, I mean, I would just listen to it back and forth, back and forth. So I knew that, that, that there was something going on in Los Angeles that I needed to be a part of. And then when I was actually did get accepted to the university, and you know, okay, well, is UCLA going to be my path, or is this music school going to be a really a much more, uh, fast break into what I need, what I want to do, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to be like Molly Crew. I want to play on stage. I want to go tour the world playing music. And so, um, again, I got to give my mom credit for saying, you know what? Um, let's, 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 you go to GIT, follow your dream to go to GIT. If it, if you find that it doesn't work out for you, then, you know, maybe you go back to university after. And yeah. you know, it, it was always that thing of having a backup plan. There's there's good and bad about having backup plans. I feel that, you know, it's it's always nice to say you have a backup plan because because you know, it, it is important to have to know that hey, not everything will work out. You can't be so right. delusional right. saying I'm going to go for this, you know. This echelon of 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 something that, that so few people get and there's no other way it can happen. <clears throat> but so if you do have, if you can at least accept the fact that, hey, I'm gonna do my best, I'm gonna try my very best, and if I don't, then I can I can pursue this because this is going to make me happy as well, then I think it's a good thing. But there's also something good about saying there's nothing else. I'm focused. This is my goal. So I like, yeah. I, I vacillate even to this day about backup plans because mm-hmm. part of me thinks that it takes away from your focus of the goal. But I've realized that it doesn't. It just lowers the importance of that goal because because even when you attain that goal or you get to the point where you go, oh man, I am touring for a living or I'm am. Uh, you know, made record albums and, you know, done a lot of the things, I've I've achieved a lot of the goals that I I wanted to and I set out to do, you're still going to have the same, you know, bad days, good days, shit days. You're still going to have that. So it doesn't fix everything. So as long as you have something else that if that doesn't happen, you have another goal as well that, you know, hey, if it doesn't happen, this will happen as well, then I think it's a good thing. So again, mm. I'm, I, I'm, if you ask me, okay, what what do people think about backup plans? I, I'd be like, two different ways. And and I vacillate, you know, but I I do think actually, you know, the way I'm leaning these days, especially with all the experience that I've had at this point in my career, it's to leave, it's to have a backup plan and know that it will work out, except that it might not. But then once you have that backup plan, focus on the goal and it it. will happen for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you
0: ended up going to GIT.
1: Yes, I did. I went to okay. this uh, school, the pretty much a year before um, Paul Gilbert did. Right around the same type of um, classes as um, Frank Gambale. I mean, the, the teachers that these were students at the time who be- mm-hmm. eventually became instructors and who eventually became actually recording artists and uh, amazing, you know, solo guitarists in their own right. But the staff there was top-notch. It wasn't um, as, I guess, maybe corporate and, you yeah. know, file them in, file them out. It seemed to be much more of a personal type of thing at that point. And I don't know what it is like these days. I've, I've never gone back to GIT to, to do any sort of um, uh, clinics or anything like that. I've just, you know, it's just People ask me, they go, well, how, what was the experience like for you? And I said, well, it was a positive one for me. Mm. It's not like it changed the way I play guitar because I, I kind of feel that, you know, your guitar playing, your style, it's an evolution. It's a journey. It happens over a many course of years in one year or even, a, you know, two years of a, a music school isn't going to completely change the way you play, yeah, change your style, but it is going to instill some amazing practice habits. And that's mm-hmm. what it did for me. I, not only did I uh, learn how to practice effectively going there, I've also learned way more about the lifestyle of, you know, being a rock and roll musician, in Los Angeles because you were in the environment. You weren't just reading about it in magazines. You weren't just dreaming about it or, you know, imagining it it out of town. You were in the friggin' jungle during a time when so much stuff was happening in the town. Like, again, it was the perfect storm for me because I was at the right age, at the right scene, at the right time, the type of music that I like. You know, everything was really uh blossoming and everything was really cooking in Los Angeles. Nowadays it's you can go because of technology, because of internet, you can basically start your own scene in your own town. Unlike um as long as you find some people that are in your hometown that have the exact same um, similarities as you do. And you can, it's, it's much easier, I feel, to to form a band and to have um, like-minded attitudes because of the internet now, yeah. as, as opposed to back then.
0: Now, what I find interesting about you is that you were in that scene for a little, I don't know how many years, but you were in there for a little bit, right? You played in different bands. Met played a, lot in of a people, ton of, bands. yeah yeah, but with electric angels, you guys decided to leave l a
1: yeah, we did the exact opposite, which is yeah. important too sometimes you if you do the exact opposite of what everyone else is doing so every once in a while it works out, I and mean, it wasn't because we didn't try to get a record deal in Los Angeles, and we weren't doing our best to um get noticed by record labels. You know, Electric Angels, the band, it it, it had come out of this band called Candy. And Mm -hmm. Candy uh, was a kind of a power pop band that, you know, played a little bit more on the heavier guitar aggressive side, but the songs were much more what I was raised on, Beatles, Cheap Trick, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of Sex Pistols thrown in there for good measure. Sex Pistols, as much as everyone wants to say they're punk rock, they had some really good uh, hooky pop sure, melodies sure. as well. Um, so that band sort of fused off into Kill for Thrills, which Gilby Clark uh, led and... Mm-hmm. Um, Fronted and then Electric Angels, which is the rest of Candy. And we found a singer named Shane. And we would play all around the scene. we play the, the um, Ricky Rackman's Cat House. We'd play Dale Gloria's Scream Downtown Club. We'd play uh, Janice's was it, English Acid. We'd play all every. Uh, Madame Wong's West was another uh, club that we would play a lot. But all, all these club gigs that we do, and we got to do opening uh, opening slots for a bunch of up-and-coming bigger bands. You know, the bands coming from the UK or, or bands that were catching a, a, a pretty big um, traction in the rock and roll genre and they were all getting signed. They were all other bands were getting signed. Like I remember opening up for a band called Zodiac Mind Warp. Oh yeah. Which was, it was all, it was all the rage. And, you know, we were man, this is going to be the show where we get our chance. We get our record deal and nothing happened. So once, once we've been passed on by every single label in Los Angeles, we're like, well, you know what? We've played with so many great bands. We're in the scene, but if we're not going to be able to get a record deal here, let's do something different let's find an alternative plan and we went to New York City and we had an opportunity to live in New York um, for a few months and that few months turned into a few years and you know the funniest thing about it is the same label that ended up signing us in New York had passed on us in California so what do you think the difference was um a different anr person it could have been the timing of it it could have been the band just got better uh getting in a van and playing our way across the us right. and then and then you know sort of um just immediately landing in new york and not slowing down just playing as much as we could play as many shows as we could i think we played um our first show in new york i think who did we play with um it was at lamore's east mm-hmm. and i know it was a, a club out in queens and um we played what was the band's name oh darn it but it was a it was a cool gig because we had never played in new york and all of a sudden we all, we're in you know, within the first week, we're, we're in the scene and then we're playing as many gigs as we can in New York, because that was one of the strategies of playing in New York was that two hours south, two hours west, two hours north, they're all gigs, you mm-hmm. know? It, you, can, you can play Jersey, you can play down in Philly, you can drive up to Boston, so you have a lot more opportunities to play. and within a very short amount of time we got one another, one of those really cool opening shows, uh, in New York city, it was, uh, it was mother love bone that we were opening oh, okay. up for, which eventually became, uh, Pearl, Pearl Jam. Jam. Yeah. 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 And, um, and dogs de more was the headliner on that tour as well. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. uh, we've been the opening band for that slot. Uh, Atlantic records came down to, to watch the show and, not really going there to see us, but going to see, you know, who, what's all this hype about mother love bone and, you know, dogs to more, we want to check out as well. And they liked us. We're not signed. Hey, yeah. The Other bands are signed within about a you know, two or three weeks. We had a record deal. That's awesome. Yeah. Now That's... I
0: remember electric angels. When you guys came out, you had a, the single was rattlesnake kisses, right? That's right.
1: I remember that was her first that. single. Christina I, Applegate's in the video, from uh, Christina she, Applegate from at the at the time, probably the number one uh, sort of girl on yes, TV yes. for being you know married with children, and she's the she's the hot blonde, and probably our biggest mistake is not. Really focusing on her as the video chick, because we wanted to, we want the song to stand out. We want the, you know, we want the band to stand out. We just put Christina in the whole thing. Then that's all the video is going to be about. Well, you know, now with social media, it's like you realize that, yeah, you go with what people want, but you know what? I still think her appearance in it is really cool because the way she's kind of a little diaphanous here and there, she's behind some sheer sheets and stuff, it worked out really cool because she didn't uh, come across like, like she was trying to, it was her thing. She was yeah. helping us. And that's the way Christina always has been with Electric Angel. She was always super cool to us, even in the early days in Los Angeles. Um, just such a sweet person, such a cool person. Every time I, I run across her, um, we run across each other, we are um, we just hug each other and say, you know, she's, she's just a cool chick. You know, yeah. no doubt about it. And she helped us out to get to that point. And that was our first single. Yeah, yeah. Now, I remember
0: you guys, th- this was what, late? 80s early 90s around that time 89
1: eight, 89 1990 yeah yeah i mean okay. that that was where everything was kind of it was it was all at a perfect state where los angeles music scene was still happening there's new york had a little scene going on um, that we were involved with, with a bunch of the bands that were playing, you know, there was another band that electric angels and the, another band called the throbs that we would play a lot of shows together as, you know, sort of glammy, but you know, there was also bands coming over from the UK that had uh, sort of, 70s type Mm -hmm. of glam influences as well i I remember we did the first tour electric angels and um the london choir boys we did the the london choir boys first uh american tour that they had ever been on so 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 between the uk new york la and then there's this new scene that's sort of you know making its wave and making sort of waves up in uh seattle Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we'd have some bands that were coming in, like, you know, that were playing the the Cat Club in New York City and like, what kind of music is this? This is kind of cool. This is like even a little bit more stripped down, a little bit, have a little bit more early Black Sabbath, uh, influence on it. It's a little heavier. It's a little, you know, it's not so much, uh, hairspray and makeup. It's more just, you know, a little bit more gritty. And what is this type of music? And so Soundgarden, for instance, would play these. And, And so it was an interesting time. It was before Nevermind came out, which changed Mm -hmm. the game, you know, Mm -hmm. and and to this day, one of my favorite records, you know, to get put out in in our, in my era. Um, But it was before that. And so everything was still all sort of working together, you know, just, and it was, and the coolest thing about it, Joe, all guitar driven. Yeah. Very, I mean, there were some keyboard bands, no doubt, but it seemed like the 80s keyboards, pop, you know, sort of DX7 Yamaha, all that kind of stuff had taken a little bit of a backseat for a while. Mm -hmm. And I was a huge, I was a huge fan
0: of, of that genre of music. And I remember electric angels. There was, there was a handful of bands that were kind of with you guys, like the London choir boys, good bands that just didn't really
1: break, I guess. You know what I mean? Tons of bands. Uh, I mean, because... because Salty But Dog. think about the amount of... Salty Dog's another great band. Yeah. But think of the bands that... that I mean, all, so many bands got signed. So mm. how many can you actually fit on a playlist in a radio station? Because back then, everything was incumbent. Your success was incumbent on radio airplay. Mm. Now that doesn't exist anymore as much. I mean, I, I'm sure it's, it's it's actually amazing to get radio airplay because, you know... Radio stations are still playing songs on the air, but you can do it with, you can succeed without radio airplay today, much more than you could back then. So everything was kind of reliant on the fact that you were going to get on the radio. And I remember, you know, one of our biggest achievements for Electric Angels was to get on the radio ourselves. We got there was a station called Z100. I don't know if you remember this station. It was mm-hmm. it was basically simulcast all throughout uh, the country. It was a it was I think I want to say it was based in Texas, but it was it had a had sort of a center Z100, and it would it would be simulcast all over the the United States. Well, at one point, our second single, the drinking song, it picked up steam and it made it all the way into the top 5 of their playlist and nice. but which but, but it was ridiculous because you know the number 1 song would be like you know guns and roses the number 2 song would be bon jovi the number 3 song would be electric angels the number 4 song would be you know uh aerosmith so, so it's like all, what what one of these bands doesn't fit with all the others and it was (laughs) that one song, uh, the drinking song on Z100 that really gave us a shot in the arm because we know we had had done that ourselves. That was all about fan support and that was all about touring around in bands and we did a couple cross-country tours in Vans. We we never had tour buses back in those days. It was a van and a U-Haul. And we and we were touring with bands that had amazing tour buses. So it was nice to go on the to their tour bus, you know, 15 minutes after our show and and get the pat on the back and drink the 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 cold corona. But at the same time, we'd have to get off the bus eventually and drive to the next town ourselves. But but you know, some of those tours that helped us out were bands like Danger Danger. Mm -hmm. um, and Hurricane, that was another Hurricane, tour yeah. that we had done, which Hurricane, I think, eventually, uh, who, who played? Was Dougie Aldridge in that as well? Um, Hurricane? I, I believe he was, was during one, that one, time. One, yeah, I think it was Doug Aldridge was playing, and Kelly Hansen was the lead okay, vocalist yeah. of that, who now sings in Foreigner. I mean, if you think of the types of guitar players that, that we were touring with, I mean, I wasn't intimidated at all. I, I was just like, I just, these are great guys. They're, they're 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 super sweet dudes. But now I think about their playing, their ability. I'm like going shit. I was on tour with Andy Timmons. You know he was slaying it every single night. But you know what? It was a different style of music that Electric Angels had, and people seemed to appreciate that just as much. And um, so, and Andy had the greatest attitude of all time. So you know, being able to, to tour with musicians on that level makes you uh, even more driven. To get sure. better on your own instrument yourself, sure. And then fast forward a little bit after this, few
0: years later is when you met up with Alice, right? Around 96. yeah, I mean,
1: well, it's 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 definitely a few years after because I did move to Los Angeles after Electric Angels. We were in New York, so you went back. Uh, early 90s I went back I we actually okay. went there to play a gig and I just didn't go back to New York I just stayed in, oh, in LA and I, <laughs> and I remember I wrote a handwritten letter to the guy saying look I'm staying here there's there's not there's nothing there for me anymore I I came there with like a hundred dollars in my account and two milk crates of stuff I left with twenty dollars in my account and <laughs> those same two milk crates so um, and that's the truth. And and, and yeah. I figured at that moment when I got back to LA, I was going to play with as many people as possible because all the during those years of of Candy and Electric Angels, I had pretty much stayed just with that nucleus of of guys playing, and and I learned a lot, and I'd done a lot of jamming, like one off jams, but I'd never been in bands before. Formed mm-hmm. a bunch of different bands, so. What happened then is I just started to play in all these different types of bands and Gilby Clark, who I played with in Candy, um, had gotten into Guns N' Roses at that point and was doing a solo record. So he invited me down to the studio um, to check it out. And then one thing led to another and he asked me if I wanted to be the touring guitar player for his solo album. So I got to play a little bit on that album and uh, then go out on tour and at that point was my first time ever riding on a tour bus. At that point it was my first time ever playing, you know, a super big rock show. We had yeah, done a lot so of writing. Yeah, there was some. There was some <laughs> definitely firsts on the, on that tour in that in those years playing with Gilby. So you know, between Electric Angels and Alice, Gilby was actually the the guy that. Uh, the Alice Cooper opportunity came through and then Gilby gave me this really cool endorsement to go and get this gig. And I did go get the gig and I went down there and auditioned for it and, you know, had a good day. You know, I would say. How how (laughs) was the audition? audition How, how was the audition when you walked in there? What was Alice there? And Alice was there. That's that, that's one thing I will always have respect for. And because I've auditioned for other bands uh, where, the lead singer isn't there, and you're, yeah, you know, yeah. taped, and then they get sent up and by messenger to a secret lair, and yeah, then what, what is that? Know. Yeah, no nah, it's Alice was there, you know, and and he's sitting on the couch. And he's just looking at all these guitar players come in, you know, and, and there was some good names that were there. It was, it was at Mates rehearsal studio down in, uh, in the valley there, owned by this super shady character named Bobby. He's so shady, but, you know, I love the guy. So I mention him pretty much in every interview. Yeah. I just hope that one day he listens to it and he just <laughs> smirks and laughs. He's so shady, but you know he's the guy that was on in the Quiet Riot uh, video that that who gets his face or has the mask torn off him in one of the videos. I think it's Mama Come and Feel the Noise. That's Bobby Shady. Shady. All right. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) his rehearsal studio mates, amazing rehearsal studio. Every band back in the day, even to this day, uh, rehearses there because it's just such a cool vibe. Alice has this room set up, small room, not, not super big or anything like that. Probably not as big as Wayne's world. And, um, uh, Eric Singer's playing drums and, uh, Bob Daisley's playing bass and that's it. And just one guitar player. So, I see there's a bunch of guitar players that are sort of in the holding pen and everyone's just hanging out in the office next to this audition room. So I can hear, you know, what, what they're playing uh, next door. We can all hear, you know, what's going on. And I'm listening to everybody just shred and just amazing playing and a lot of technical stuff going on. And, you know, Reb Beach was in before me and he kicked ass on his audition and I'm just listening to him going, shit, man. Of course. I learned, I learned a lot of the whittly-whittly, you know, guitar solo stuff, but this guy's, yeah. he, he's natural at it. For, for, for me, I'm more of the legato 70s guy, you know, and maybe mm. that's what Alice needs as a dichotomy. Sure. You know, he needs that 80s guy as well as the classic 70s guy. Well, the one thing I'm listening to is that that pre-chorus in the song uh, Poison, which is a Desmond uh-huh. Child, uh, Alice Cooper classic, right? And, and Desmond has collaborated with Bon Jovi, and you know he's always known for these kind of really cool modulations or really cool pre-choruses. Pre-chorus in Poison is a little bit tricky if you get off the pattern. And every guitar player that I was listening to was messing that little pre-chorus up. And, but they were nailing the solo. So I said to myself, you know, right before I went in, I said, you know what? Don't play the solo. Just play the chords right. Just concentrate on playing the chords right. Get that pre-chorus down. If you nail all three pre-choruses in the song, I think you'll get the gig. Because then you can show them that you could be that 70s guy. Because it was uh, three songs. I would think it was 18 uh, Billion Dollar Babies, I think the first song, Poison, second song, and then 18 to finish okay. it up, I believe. And Billion Dollar Babies was good. It w- went through it. You know, that's the classic rock Alice, you know, it shows a little bit of rock, shows a little bit of technique. And the true test was poison, nailed the pre-course. Nice. And I was like, feeling good about it. But then 18 came and I got that legato solo uh, just right, you know, the way that I think maybe Glenn Buxton or Michael Bruce, either of those guys would have been proud. And <clears throat> walking out of that room, Alice and I caught each other's eye, and, he, and that's another one of those moments where I kind of look back and going, that was a game-changer moment, because the look that he gave me, gave me the confidence to know that something had happened. I had done well enough to get the approval of you know, the guy that wrote the songs. Right. So that was cool. So, Excuse me one second. Yeah.
0: <clears throat>
1: okay. Did you know you got the
0: gig that day or was it was that a little time went past before he let you know?
1: Um, it was a little bit later on in the uh, afternoon that, that I got the call saying, Hey, you did really good today. Um, we're going to let you know. Uh, in the next couple of days, what's happening. And then literally within that week, by the next, I guess, 72 hours, I was on a plane flying down to, uh, Cabo San Lucas to learn the entire set, go through about, you know, cause we are going to go on a, just a one year tour, uh, co-headlining with the Scorpions. So we we're going to go down there, learn the set perform the set on stage at Cabo San Lucas, record it for a live album, which eventually became Fistful of Alice, film Man. it for VH1, and have all these special guests come up as well. So, I mean, like literally within a few days, my head is like just all in on um, studying guitar parts and and trying to get a, a set list together. And that was the thing, because we learn all these songs and then... We'd play them on stage, and Alice would be sitting off stage going, mm, let's cut that song. So, so it didn't matter how many hours of work you put on <laughs> learning yeah. this song. Yeah. It's like, song's cut, done. So, But then be very quick to learn another one. Mm. Well, I mean, we were able to do that. First time I actually performed on stage with Alice was at that call with San Lucas, Sammy Hagar and Van Halen's club, right? And... Uh, first time ever being on stage with Alice, it's recorded for an album and filmed for a video. And you have all these guys coming on like Rob Zombie, uh, you know, one of the first times I've ever, you know, seriously played with Slash, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming up and jamming because before any types of jams that we had done before over the years, whether he he came up at a, uh, um, you know, a jam at Ricky's Cat House or something like that or some sort of jam, it had been a little bit, you know, too much substance uh, yeah. ingested to actually make sense of, like if we were doing it for real. But this was this was for real because it was on video. It was on going to be a record, and he came up to play "Only Women Bleed" with us. Well, he had learned the album version, which is the correct version to play, by the way. Yeah, we had learned the live version from the last previous lineups tour which was a much more edited version. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the last minute, literally with a half an hour yeah, to go before soundcheck, we're in there cramming to learn the uh, album version. But it pulled itself off and uh, yeah. yeah, we were able to make it happen.
0: Nice, nice. So you had to be like static at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've been <laughs> ecstatic uh, ever since uh, getting that gig. I've been... You know, I've been really lucky and uh, quite happy to to have this job because think about it. I mean, we get to play these classic songs that get so much... um, joy from an audience. You get so much energy from audience when you play these classic songs, especially the ones for me that the original band wrote when you like rip into, you know, the opening riff of schools out, you know, something like that. It's Mm -hmm. like, you can see the, you know, the memories building up in people's heads of when they first heard that song, we get to do that on a nightly basis for years and years. And each sing, each tour takes us to, some sort of new experience that I haven't had uh, musically yet. You know, Alice has allowed me to see the world playing music, but also all these other experiences, you know, meeting the posters on my wall, you know, all the guys in Cheap Trick at this point I've been able to hang with. All these, you know, bands that I grew up with. I mean, I told you earlier in our our conversation about how Too Fast for Love was such an important album for me. Well, we ended up doing a two-year tour with Motley Crue, you know so at that point it's like oh shit you really are that is the definition of living your dream yeah yeah how was the crew tour <laughs> uh living the dream <laughs> every every single bucket list place that i had wanted to play but had not been able to play over the years was kind of checked off hollywood bowl you know mm-hmm. i just think about the beatles at the hollywood bowl and i go Fuck, well we just played the hollywood bowl i'm I'm there. I'm a beetle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not really, but you know, I'm thinking like Madison Square Garden. I had never played Madison Square Garden up until then, and then boom! It's like pretty go. much any town that had a big basketball team or a big ho- hockey team or big football team. We were playing those venues, so right. it's quite cool. Okay. Now you um you had left Alice for a little bit. Yeah. At one point, right. And then, uh, 2005, I made a decision to have the family move to Sweden. My, my, uh, my former wife, she's, she's Swedish. And so the opportunity again was there. You take, you take the opportunities. Like, you know, I had that opportunity to go down to Los Angeles. We had the opportunity to go to New York, the opportunity presented itself to go to Sweden. And yeah. so I wanted to see what it was like out there. Um, I wanted to see what it was like living in Europe, and uh, it's been it's been quite a run, you know. I'm mean, still there. Yeah, I'm not married anymore to to her. I'm, I'm remarried to a uh, to a South African, and maybe that is the next destination. Right. Um, but we, I have two kids uh, with my with my ex, and um, I did not want to leave Sweden until they're old enough to sure. you know get through school and and then they can figure it out where they want to go from there. And um, so I've been here for, for quite a while, but during that time of 2005, um, it was a transition of, you know, I want to spend time during these young early years for them to see them, you know, grow up, mm-hmm. experience some of that. And so I didn't tour for until from 2000, basically end of 2005, early 2006, all the way into to, to, until 2012, and when I got the call to come back, it was it was one of those things that I knew was the right time and it's the time. right place to do it. And again, I got to thank so many um, of the Alice Cooper supporters for throwing my name in the hat and suggesting and emailing and yeah. you know sort of putting a campaign together to get me back in the band. And it's been consistent touring ever since 2012.
0: How long has the band that is intact now been playing together?
1: Wow, oh, this lineup has been uh, together longer than the original band. How about that? Yeah, That's it's been a, a while, cra- right? Crazy statistic. Yeah. yeah, this is a very consistent lineup. Because I was used to many years having either a different drummer for this tour, or a different uh, guitar, guitarist to play with, or somebody getting switched out, maybe. Um, and, you know, the only thing consistent really was, was Alice Cooper. And you know, let's be honest, that is the one consistency that you need sure. to have the show. Everyone else can, <laughs> kind of you know, that part. <laughs> <laughs> everyone else might be able to take a night or two off here or there, but it's like, you can't do a show without Alice. So, yeah. um, but this lineup, uh, when Nita Strauss, because we were playing with Ori Anthe before, who's an amazing guitar player, um, we just played with her at an Alice Cooper charity event um, this past uh, holiday season, at a, and we were able to play a few songs with Ori. She's a great player. But uh, you know, when Nita came around, she's a game changer, and she um, joined the band, fit in perfectly, and she's been consistent, I think, since 2004. 15, 14, okay. somewhere, somewhere, right right around there. And so, uh, yeah, we've been together. Um, we kind of all know uh, what we're playing. We all know our roles. We all know what the other person is going to uh, do w- w- when they go for a solo. So we can back off and we can, we can sort of let who's ever got that solo spot at that moment take the s- spotlight. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we do that is because... Alice fully allows us to be mm-hmm. the the biggest sort of uh, flamboyant musicians that we can sure. be when it's our turn to shine. When he, he in in very few gigs, I think you get that um, sort of freedom to like, no, no, don't don't just do it, overdo it, go yeah. go nuts. This is your moment to shine. And, you know, a lot of times I think uh, there's egos and there's always this, well, I don't want to overstep my boundaries here. No, Alice gives you that freedom. He pushes you actually. Mm. Hey, when it's your turn to solo, Roxy, go to the center of the stage. Don't stay off to the side. So, uh, you know, we're we're all really appreciative of the fact that uh, Alice is so supportive, but that's because he's so, you know, comfortable in his own uh, legendary status, you sure. know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's weird. Cause none of us have that household name um, status that uh, Alice does. So we, I marvel at the fact that, you know, he's able to just be as such a normal dude as he is, you know, he it's seems like,
0: very down to earth. I, oh, I've never he met he's, the guy, but he seems like he's awesome.
1: He, he, he makes you feel like you're the most important person in the room when he when he's talking to you he's actually he's listening to you he's mm. not just you know he's not he's engaging with you and and that's with anybody it's not just because we're in his band he'll engage with you if he meets you you know while he's shopping or will he meet you on the golf course so yeah. you know that is a really cool uh characteristic to have and it's it's like i said it's not just music that he's influenced me and it's how he conducts himself. Sure. You know, off stage as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you
0: guys just recently wrapped up a pretty successful tour with Ace Freely
1: we just uh finished it and we're going back out again in yeah. just a couple weeks so I'm excited to to kick it off again in 2022 this is going to be and I do actually see some dates with ace freely on the uh, schedule again so it's good to see yeah. that uh, the relationship with ace is is you know he's <laughs> Again, another one of those posters on your wall. He grew up listening to Love Gun. That was my first Kissed album that I had. I had the, you know, the fold out bang pow, I think yeah, it was, yeah, that the little KISS gun. gun that came in the M yep, set. I, I had that hanging as a mobile growing up. Um, it's it's funny. Just to, oh, God, this is the guy that we play with every night. And, you know, we, we have conversations with, go out to dinner. And uh, it's cool to see him and alice um on the road together it's a good double bill i feel i also saw buck cherry on a bunch of the shows as well and i think they're a great band as as well um billy Rowe, the guitarist uh, one of the guitar players from buck cherry we have a cool relationship because not only did we play together and we grew up both in the bay area at the same time he was in jet Uh, boy wasn't he he was in Jet Boy when I was yeah. in Electric Angels, and we would do many shows together as well. And now another cool sort of some uh, bond that we have is that he has a company called Rock and Roll Relics, yeah. and I'm playing a um, I call it the uh, what is it called the Roxy Rebel or Roxy? Um, it, it's 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 a, a guitar design, uh, one of his newer designs that he has. Roxy's Revenge—that's what it is. It's the revenge okay. model that he has, and uh, the Roxy Revenge is out on tour. It's his company's guitar, like it's, like he oh, designed it, yeah. and I and I sort of, you know, aesthetically kind of made some suggestions of the way I wanted it to look. Sounds great, plays great, and now we get to you know sort of promote it and tour it together while we play yeah, shows that'd together. Be it's fun. Be that'd be cool. That'd be fun. Yeah, Ace's
0: band. I've had uh, Ryan on the show before, and Ryan's a great guy. Ryan, Ryan Cook. Cook. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, what, he's a blast. Perfect that,
1: human being. One flaw, just one <laughs> flaw with with Ryan Cook. There's, What's I mean, that? but but other than that, pretty much a perfect human being. He likes the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't get it. What? They're my arch rival. I'm an, I'm a Raider fan. I you 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 cannot say that you like the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, I'm not going to tell you my team then. Is is it the is it the Denver Broncos? Who's, who's The yours? Buccaneers. Ah, oh, the Buccaneers. You know what? Good for the Buccaneers. Because I've been a Buck honestly, fan
0: since the probably the early 80s. I've been a Buck fan.
1: Yeah. So if you've been there, then you know what it's like to be a Raider fan. You you've experienced <laughs> a lot of losing since the eighties. And yes. and now that you have this winning sort of um you have this winning pace going on the last couple of years. I I like by the time this airs, I'm not sure if it will be uh you know too late or too early to be celebrating or to be commiserating but uh <laughs> you know my team just finished up their season yep, uh yep. with a loss and it's okay because i think that they had a really challenging season with all the shit that went on but i'm, I'm yeah. a big supporter of it they did
0: they did alright
1: but uh yeah you know what i have I have no beef at all with the with, with the Bucks. I think they, um, I mean, they broke my heart when they beat us in the Super Bowl. Well, but I mean, I they just kicked our asses. You. And, and, and it, no, it was just it was just <laughs> such a a shellacking. When you get your ass beat that bad, you can't feel. You can't even feel bad. And I was at that game. I was at that Super Brilliant. Bowl. By the way, nice. I was surrounded by red jerseys and so many Tampa Bay Bucks. And I was like so sure that we were going to show up, and we didn't even show up that day. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> Ryan Cook, I love him to death. And, and you know, it's okay that he is a KC fan because I can yeah. tell he's been a KC fan for a long time. KC's uh, just, um, they're just frustrating because they are so fucking good. And mm-hmm. uh, at one point, they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to sort of not be so good. <laughs> you know? It don't happen. It happens to them all. <laughs> well, it happened to the patriots they definitely got their yeah. uh they got oh, some at the lick their wounds this year and patriot yeah. fans i mean they were bills came way way through but th- that's a yeah. whole another topic for a whole nother type of podcast yeah
0: yeah so I, I i don't i'm on a time crunch here but i wanted to talk to you about your podcast in the trenches sure why did you start a podcast
1: I started a podcast because I felt so many of the conversations that I was having, whether it was being in the back of a bus or whether it would be backstage uh, in a dressing room with these cool musicians, were being heard by too few people. I mean, I feel there's so much inspiration that some of the come out of some of these conversations that I have with musicians that I needed to be heard by more people. And um, so then we put together this, and it was. You know, a little bit before the pandemic hit, but when the pandemic hit, we really kicked it into gear mm-hmm. and everybody was available to talk at that point and everybody yeah. wanted to talk. And there was so many things, similarities that I find and consistencies that I find with the musicians and entertainers and actors and comedians that I uh interview, sort of their practice habits, their work ethic, their... Um, preparation, There's so many similarities and you see why they're successful. You see why yes. the people yes. that I interview have gotten to the point where they've gotten, and hopefully that, uh, those talks inspire the listener to like, say, you know what? I know it's tough, but if they do it and if they've done it and I sort of can take what they're saying maybe not copy it, but make it my own, take it as influence and then do it my own way Then I can do it and make it the same way. Then the the podcast has done nothing but put, you know, good positive energy out there. So, and, and the title is kind of perfect because, you know, in the trenches, there's a lot of us that, you know, we're working every single day, trying to get to that next goal, trying to get to that next level. And during that time we're in the trenches, but we're enjoying the process we're enjoying the ride so to speak and we're enjoying the whole uh journey and that's what this hopefully this podcast reflects is you know fellow musicians and artists and again entertainers personalities all reaching a common ground like hey it's it is can be challenging it can be tough there can be fucking sucky days but guess what this is the reason why we do this this is the reason why we love it and here's my tips and here's my advice if you want to do the same
0: yeah what do you uh want to see from your podcast in the future where you want it to go
1: um i'd like to see it grow to a bigger national audience um i would like to see getting even uh, a wider spectrum of uh, artists on not just you know, rock guitar players and not just, you know, because we've, we've done a good job of, of like putting, dabbling it out there, um, uh, getting certain, you know, some, one of my favorite comedians of all time, Doug Stanhope came on. One of my favorite intellectuals of all time, Jordan Peterson came on and and, 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 and talked, you know, spoke about his ideas and, but also about his music. And that's the thing, before everyone jumps on the bandwagon of of the Jordan Peterson bashing contest, why don't you listen to his ideas and listen to what he said instead of what you've heard from some person of what some other person said. That's that's another thing that I feel that having some of these artists on is like maybe they have a bad uh, perception or they have a negative perception or maybe it's a positive perception, but you get to hear it from their mouth and make decide yeah, for yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like in a few weeks, I'm going to have Ted Nugent on. And I know his views are polarizing. His views can be, you know, can be construed one way or this way. But guess what? If I let him say it out of his own mouth, you don't have to, you know, read about it from, oh, well, this person said he had said that. No, you Mm -hmm. come and listen to what Ted Nugent says himself when when, when we're having a conversation together. And so that's what i kind of hope that we i I keep getting a broader uh spectrum of artists and maybe a broader section uh selection of views you know it doesn't Mm -hmm. always have to be you know you can you can be totally pro-vax and you can be totally anti-vax, but you could also have a conversation about it somewhere in the middle. Sure, And that's what we're trying to do. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a very entertaining podcast.
0: I enjoy it. Um, Everything about it, the production quality. You got Vic helping you out there, right?
1: Yeah. Vic Shelfon has been amazing at uh, stepping up and taking the production to another level. Um, He's really great at it, reading the script. We, we put the script together. We have uh, script coordinators that are on the team. Federica does a great job with it. We also have people that that, that um, always give us input and help with the script. I, I myself self-dive down the rabbit hole of the script. I love doing it. And as you look over it and you see all these opportunities to get these amazing uh, sort of photos and and sort of nuggets of like okay this information will correlate with with this little bit of information and it just yeah it's been working out good so i i thank the team for putting it together and if anybody wants to watch it the best way to do it is just go to my um Ryan Roxy official YouTube channel. That's our mm-hmm. best platform that we have because when we do live stream it every Friday, we have a live chat that's uh, there, very uh, receptive, very interactive and very inviting. So, you know, don't be afraid if it's your first time uh, coming into the chat, everybody's very welcoming. Yeah,
0: I'm going to have to, I haven't been able to catch a live one yet, but I'm going to have to uh, jump in there. Please do. Yeah, 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 yeah. they'll love you. So it's called Ryan Roxy in the trenches, right? It's called
1: in the trenches
0: with, with with Ryan Ryan Roxy. Roxy. Yep.
1: Yeah. And and that's on on the,
0: yep. Okay. Um, Listen, man. There's so much more I, I really want to talk to you about, but I, uh, I'm, I kind of, I'm on a time crunch. <laughs> I Got to go do that work. Well, thing, I, you know, <laughs> I,
1: I understand. I understand. How about we do, uh, we do a catch up sometime while while we're on tour this uh, year in 2022? Give you a little update of what's happening with either the U.S. tour later on in the year or the uh, European tour, and we can come That's back awesome. for a part two.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's yep. do it. We'll be in contact. Um, you guys, are Thanks, playing, I'm in Myrtle beach. So the closest you're playing to me, let me look here is I want to say Savannah, Georgia. It's about a three and a half, okay. four hour drive. So it's a little, far, a little bit okay. later
1: on this month. Uh, it looks
0: like it February, in February, mm-hmm, February okay, cool. 5th. All right. Um, I'm going to try and make it out there. Um, I got three kids at home, so I just, you know, how that goes all depends if I can get somebody to watch
1: them. Yeah. Let me know. Let me know. But, just uh, let me, let me, know. Like I said, we're, we're still touring under this uh, COVID bubble, this which yeah. is the way, you the safe way to do it these short. days. And it's the only way to do it. We were pretty proud that we did an entire um, tour last run with no delays and no cancellations. That's so awesome. we want to continue that. And, um, you know, everybody out there. Uh, Stay safe and uh, stay healthy and uh, do what you know is right for your body. And at the same time, don't uh, do the research yourself, you know, don't, don't, don't have Dr. Facebook or, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, influence your Call you do the research all you do your due diligence yourself it's your body your life and you make these choices for yourself but at the most part uh, most important thing is uh, keep healthy and keep safe and uh, we want to see you too.